0: Hello and welcome to Dress Fancy, the podcast about fashion, fantasy, and fancy dress. I'm Lucy Clayton and I'm here with Dr Benjamin Wilde to explore the private history of costume. We're interested in the the behind-the-scenes stories, the real tales of costumes worn by real people, So much is written or celebrated about costume and performance in film, theatre, ballet and opera and rock and roll, but we're fascinated by ordinary people in extraordinary outfits. The parties, the politics, the places and the personalities. The social significance and psychology of that most childish of pleasures, dressing up. Today, we'll be talking about perhaps the most grown-up party ever held, an event so sophisticated that it's consistently described as the ball of the century.
1: On the Reggio Canal, Venice, the Labia Palace
2: is transformed for one night into a scene of 18th century glory. To the landing stage where a costume footman lights their way come a thousand guests by gondola to be received by Lady
1: Duff Cooper on behalf of their host. Planned as a friendly housewarming to his many friends by Don Carlos de Bestegui. Okay, so of course we are talking about the Bestigi Ball held in Venice on the 3rd of September 1951.
0: Now, we've referenced this in previous episodes, our Christmas special episode, no less, with guest, the jewellery archivist and expert on all things sparkly, Levi Higgs, where we shamelessly <laughs> trawled through the jewellery boxes of the rich and famous, discussing who wore what to three of the biggest balls of the 20th century. But Ben and I felt that this event was deserving of more attention. As always, you can see the images that accompany this conversation on our Instagram feed, at Dress Podcast. So... First of all, Ben, tell me a little bit about our host this evening.
1: Well, I think the first thing to say is that as splendidly erated as the news clip there was from the Pathé archive, I don't agree with this idea that SD was celebrating the ball with friends. He was regarded as someone who was a recluse. He is very much an aesthete. So the idea that he's hosting a ball, I think, is not atypical. So to set the scene then, for those of you who have not listened to our Christmas episode and Shabon any of you, if that does apply. (laughs) But he is the owner of the Platz Libya, which he has been restoring. So essentially, why is the ball hosted? It's a housewarming, as we've seen before. If you've got the time, the money, you've had a little bit of renovation work, what better way of celebrating than having a costumed ball? And I I do mean that quite seriously, what better way? (laughs) But he's also an individual who has had lots of housing and artistic projects. So formerly, he's penthouse in Paris and this this will give you I, I think an insight into his nature his stage managing and maybe why he probably didn't have too many friends so the penthouse is designed by le corbusier it has an electrically powered hedge which drops so you can get a better view of the arc de triomphe and the roof terrace itself was designed by salvador dali who was a guest at the Venetian ball so someone who is quite i think self-determined, someone who is also very single-minded about his aesthetics and what he likes. Also, I think interesting that his big, I suppose, palatial pad in the French countryside, the Chateau de Grosse, he starts developing that in 1939. Odd in the sense that that's also the beginning of the Second World War. Most people thinking about reining the belt, if not fighting mm. for their country or culture. He is actually... He's got the
0: paint charts he's out. He's got the
1: paint charts out, yeah. And in some ways again, I think demonstrates his lack of connectivity. He is a millionaire based on his sort of family inheritance, has lived this quite rarefied existence, went to Eton, was going to go and study history of art at Cambridge, but the war, unfortunately, intervened for him. So this kind of playboy lifestyle, no cares, enabling him to create, collect and curate both people and objects, I think. So maybe not a particularly nice individual.
0: Beaton, who, of course famously could be arch about pretty much anyone. Wasn't a big fan, was he? Uh, He's described in his diaries as being utterly ruthless. Such qualities as sympathy, pity, or even gratitude are completely lacking. Adding, for good measure, he is without a doubt the most self-engrossed and pleasure-seeking person that I have met. Which, given who he hangs (laughs) out (laughs)
1: with, Uh, is
0: quite damning, isn't it? But I think
1: also the admiration. I mean, I think what's interesting is that the Chateau de Grosse apparently is the inspiration for the study of Henry Higgins in Beaton's My Fair Lady. So there's a sense that you don't like the character, but he's maybe fun to hang around with because of the money, because of his aesthetic tastes, and because it's inspiration for your own little design phrase, perhaps.
0: And also, he's clearly at the centre of a artistic and oh, cultural absolutely. moment, yeah. Yeah. which is in itself interesting. And people have said that we would today call him an interior designer mm. or a stylist. Yeah. Clearly... There is a lot of styling going on in oh, this completely. ball, yeah. which in itself we'll come on to talk about that. But it's interesting, as with other events that we've discussed, the Russian example, mm, yeah. Devonshire Ball. You know, there is often the bigger the event, the more excitement yeah. and gossip that it invites, the more disdain or the the more people are inclined to critique it as well. I think
1: think that's true. I mean, as much as there's fascination, there always seems to be that sort of core of fury. And -hmm. I think that's particularly the case here. So if he's renovating his country, Chateau, in 1939, when the world is going to war, in 1951, the world is recovering from the war, although the Cold War is just beginning. If we think about Britain by way of context, in 1951, Britain still has wartime rationing in train. That's not lifted until 1954. So people are suffering. They're Mm -hmm. very much counting the cost. He, however, is counting the pennies, or maybe not, on his mansion, this palazzo that he's acquired for an estimated $500,000 in 1948. And he's then spent £750,000 renovating So again, you do get the sense of someone who is very much in his own world, Mm. quite happy with that, I think. And
0: that contrast between the events of the outside world and what's happening in that private social circle. Mm. At the time, British socialite David Herbert, he said it seemed like a moral indecency. Yeah.
1: And I think you can well understand that. But I think what's interesting is that within the clique, within the circle that Bastigi operates, you've clearly got people who sanction that. So mm. the invitations that are sent out for the ball, they're sent out in the spring, so obviously plenty of time to sort of plan your, your costume. But then interestingly that there are these rumours of invitations that were available on the black market in Rome and Paris for $500. So we might sort of begrudge him and sort of say that he's quite shameless, but actually... He's part of... uh, There's an interest uh, in it. There's an appetite for
0: that behaviour. And actually, you know, let's be completely honest, there's still an appetite for it. I mean, we're discussing it now and having just said all (laughs) of the things we just said, we're now going to revel in the details (laughs) of this completely over-the-top event. (laughs) Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, again, in our last episode, we were talking about the met gala, if an invitation is not forthcoming, then <laughs> would I go on the black market? Well, maybe, maybe listeners, maybe I would.
0: <laughs> you would like crawling up from, a, <laughs> Don't from give the, the, the canal, ideas, just being see. like, hi guys, I'm in my costume, goggles <laughs> well, off. Well,
1: you know what's interesting? Again, going back to the Pathé clip, it said that there were a thousand guests. There were only ever 700 invites.
0: So some people did So 300 in.
1: people did kind of swim the canal, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of my relatives
0: <laughs> yes you've descended from those gate crashes yes i knew there was something you were a wrong and let's talk about the theme first of all so it's a house warming with a difference yes and why? tell me why it's
1: housewarming with a difference because the theme is essentially inspired. It, it's a Cleopatra theme, in essence. Everybody loves Cleopatra. And it's inspired by some frescoes that Estigi has in another one of his residences, frescoes by Giambattista Tipolo. So again, that kind of artistic, aesthetic wonderment continues and I think tells us again something about how he is creating something that links very much to him that in all these guests coming to his ball, they're also revelling in the art that he owns that has inspired it. So it's very... It's self-referencing, isn't it? Everything. Yeah, very solipsistic. And
0: equally, he clearly had a talent for the stage management Mm. of things. This is a party that had a formal dress rehearsal. I just would like to say that I love this idea and I'm going to be using it in my own Mm. events going forward. There's
1: actually silence on this side of the room because it's actually a revelation that you've never had a dress rehearsal for. I haven't.
0: I had a rehearsal when I got married, but you kind of have to do that. Yeah. I think this is going to be a thing, pre-party, party, party, after party. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Because it is annoying, the arrivals thing, Mm. people being late and stuff.
1: Yeah. And not arriving when they should do, the order of precedence. Mm -hmm.
0: I think I've got more in common with this unpopular man than (laughs) than perhaps I realised at the beginning of this. But I mean,
1: that sort of Pathé clip, I think it doesn't say, but I think it is probably the recording of the rehearsal because he's flapping about as all the guests are arriving. And again, this isn't easy to do. You're arriving along the sort of Grand Canal in Venice. This isn't sort of a conventional roadway. And the extraordinary pictures that, as Lucy, you said, will will show on our Instagram feed of this sort of flotilla of boats coming down the Grand Canal. But anyway, the Pathé clip showing him in his sort of shirt sleeves. Everyone Mm. else... Is arrayed in their finery. He, of course, isn't. No, I don't know. I'm guessing it's because you're the guest. You have to perform as he wants you to. He, of course, is going to reveal his He'll costume. He'll do the big reveal. Yeah, it's that's his prerogative. Fair I and think that's so. Fair no, I'm not. I'm not disputing it. There's admiration there in my tone.
0: Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> <So> or... let's... <laughs> let's talk a bit about the guests.
1: Okay. So in our previous episode with Levi, we did mention Daisy Fellows and the jewelry that she was wearing. She dresses as the queen of Africa. And she wears, as we said in our um, jewelry themed Christmas extravaganza, the Collier Hindu. So a necklace from Cartier's Tutti Frutti range that bizarrely is inspired by India, despite the fact that she is the queen of Africa. So again, that kind of Almost blithe indifference that we associated with mm-hmm. Carlos de Guests kinda of share that too. I think it also, though, this very powerful necklace, Teresa may could really <laughs> learn a thing or two about kind of statement jewellery. But it tells us something about Daisy Fellows' gutsy character. She's wearing a leopard print dress. Obviously, I guess why not, she might think. But I think her character and her feistiness is also drawn out by the nature of her arrival. And there's quite a quite a memorable account <laughs> that is actually recorded by Nicholas Volks in his book about the legendary costume balls of the sort of 19th and 20th century.
2: Fellow's yacht, the Sister Anne, signalled it was coming into Venice's harbour, only to receive the reply, too many ships, not enough pilots, three hours wait. The harbour master should have known better. Nobody, absolutely nobody, told Daisy Fellows what to do. Taking the wheel from her astonished captain, she announced that she would take the boat in. Madam, it's one of the trickiest harbours in the world to enter. Maybe for you, captain, came the answer, but not for me. I've been here at least thirty times. Following a single, sinuous channel just a few yards wide, she began to make her way in. Frantic signals came from the shore to stop at once. She ignored them. Watch me carefully, she said to the captain, in case this happens next year. She negotiated the treacherous approach perfectly and headed for her yacht's usual berth. Cue further urgent signals to tie up elsewhere, which of course were ignored. And when irate harbour officials came to complain, she invited them on board and turned her charm on them, laughing, Italian men are so easy, once they had gone.
1: (laughs) So true.
2: Legend. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that
1: tells you something about, I mean, obviously this is one individual, but the type of people that Bestie is surrounding himself with. And frankly, I would have wanted to surround myself with Daisy Vellows. I think she's an extraordinary person.
0: Although we may want to reflect on that a little bit more as we go into another episode which we will have as part of this series, which is, of course, about cultural appropriation. We've referenced it lots of other times, but that's a really provocative example because, as you say, she's sort of behaving as one character, presenting herself as one character. Africa, India, it's kind of all the same. Exactly, It's so... There's the crassness of that when also played out on the scale of Cartier's jewels and the kind of extravagance of that is so... Mm. uncomfortable and ugly. Mm.
1: What is interesting, I mean, when we were looking at the Devonshire Ball in Series 1, a lot of that opprobrium and fury is actually quite, quite patent. But actually, in a lot of the coverage of the Bastigi Ball, it's actually, quite interestingly, the attendees themselves that seem to be the most critical. I mean, you mentioned socialite David Herbert. Actually, a lot of the kind of glosses that are recording it I think they're bemused by it, but considering when this is happening, there does seem to be a kind of cultural blind spot, which is just really odd when we do think, as you said, to this blatant and grossly insensitive cultural appropriation.
0: Especially at a time straight after war, yeah. which requires us all to consider things like national identity yeah. and heritage. And, and, and yeah, and what you're where fighting you come for, from, your what, values. Exactly. It, yeah. It's not like that hasn't been front of mind. But of course it's been front of mind in a very European way. Yeah. Which excludes... Africa, India, because they're all, you know. Yeah,
1: no, I suppose that's it's true. All,
0: it's all about other, isn't it? As yeah. opposed to the sort of intimacy of a European understanding of who we are, I or, guess. Or
1: we fought for the for the values. Now let's have a kind of, you know, knees up where we just temporarily forget about them. because Colonial.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and
1: I think that that comes out in another of the guests. So this is Arturo Lopez Wilshaw, who, another millionaire, his family's millions coming from Chile and Guano, but apparently spending $55,000 on a set of costumes that were inspired by... 18th century China, which again, in terms of the cultural appropriation, you do think somewhat insensitive, but he does take this theme to the limit in the sense that they actually arrive on a Chinese junk. So it's almost difficult even now to kind of make sense of the decision-making processes that are going through his mind. I mean, he's obviously committed to this theme. Oh,
0: entirely. Um,
1: You know, you've got the sort of six inch false nails, songbirds in gilded cages, He's gone all out. Yeah.
0: It would be really interesting to see what the effect of that was like on the night and how it was received yeah. in that moment because there are so many beautiful pictures yeah. of this evening, some really extraordinary ones. And there's something about the pictures of him and his kind of crew like yeah. really distasteful, I think. But I
1: think what's also interesting is that he arrives with his wife and his boyfriend. So, so
0: he wasn't a man of great taste, <laughs> No, But you know,
1: but again, you've got to get, get the sense of these people who all seem to be quite set apart and quite odd in a sense. I mean, but
0: do you think in the moment that would have been considered charming eccentricity? I don't know.
1: I mean, you, I, I was sort of thinking as I said that, because you don't get that level of tension between the guests or you don't appear to it, let's say the Devonshire Ball. No. Or even... Possibly at the Romanov ball that we mentioned as a clique, they're quite distant from society. But, but they are
0: together. But as they are one. together. Yeah. But here
1: you get these kind of odd tussles and disconnections between people who collectively are in their own bubble, but then individually are in bubbles within that. In a mm. sense, it seems. I mean,
0: of course, there's always politics. There's always a hierarchy in mm. any room, particularly when you're talking about big society events yeah. where the stakes are high. But there's lots of factors at play and mm. how people. Define yeah. their status, and it's yeah. it's a kind of reasonably intense. I think that's exploration true. Yeah. of that, but I wonder whether part of that difference in this example mm. is it if if you have someone who isn't a natural person at bringing other people together. Some of the greatest yeah. hosts of all time are greatest hosts not because they were able to throw the most lavish parties, but because they had an instinctive yeah. warmth and talent for bringing people together. Mm. And if that's not the case in this instance, perhaps that then invites a different atmosphere. I think you're right,
1: because it's interesting that a Stigy sort of guest of honour, the person who meets the guests, oddly isn't him, mm. it's Lady Duff Cooper or Lady Diana Cooper, who is regarded as, in some ways, the period's, not necessarily a great socialite, but a great lady who is widely respected, is warm. Who has all of the things that, as you said, you'd want of your perfect host, which, of course, Bastigi lacks in spades.
0: So it's almost like he hands that job, hands that role wholesale over to somebody else. It's a kind of weird thing to do, though, to throw a party and then almost dodge Mm. the role.
1: Yeah. But then I suppose he's lurking in the Palazzo Labia for the big reveal when you see him erasing his costume. Because I think if I remember... When the guests have been greeted and they come into the palazzo, he's standing at the top of the staircase with this power pose as they come in. I see. So even then, rather than... I mean, he's clearly obviously recognising a deficiency in his character to be warm and welcoming, but kind of turning it into a curated moment where he can quite literally tower over them because he's on the second floor or first floor, tower over them because he's wearing heels in his costumes anyway. So clearly very considered in terms of how he's planned this all through
0: i think there's a whole episode on fancy dress and staircases i'm thinking Ooh. about what we talked about about the importance of the staircase at the entrance oh, of that's the met true. gala yes. and as you told that story i was thinking only of the moment in rebecca that's where she comes down the yes. and it's the moment where everything mm. all falls apart that catastrophic... But it is,
1: it's that sort of, that that moment of the drama of the staircase. I mean, I'm thinking of Sunset Boulevard where you have Gloria Swanson doing her, I'm ready for my close-up moment on a staircase. The drama of that throughout, I suppose, Hollywood, but I think lending itself more to the theatricality of a costume ball.
0: It also makes me think now of all of the pictures you ever see of anyone in their wedding dress coming down the stairs of their parents' yeah. semi-detached provincial home. This and it's is like-
1: a <laughs> podcast episode. This is a book.
0: Staircases we have known and loved. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Okay, seriously, (laughs) this is
1: obviously recorded, so you can't steal this from us. Yes,
0: okay. Some very famous guests who are household names today.
1: Yeah. And, And I think, again, you know, using this as a vehicle to advance themselves. I mean, possibly one of the best examples of that might be Pierre Cardin, who is designing the costumes for Salvador Dali and Christian Dior. And these really extraordinary costumes, these powering they're called phantoms of Venice. These sort of white-faced ghosts, essentially, the people wearing stilts. Again, not comfortable, not practical. I'm, I'm wondering how they alighted from their gondolas.
0: Oh my goodness! I was thinking about dancing, but I had forgotten the gondolas. Yeah, that's why you have to dress rehearse.
1: Yes, it is. Yeah.
0: I have quite a fear of people in stilts.
1: I absolutely hate it. Yeah, and if it's someone on like stilts and on the little, little tricycle,
0: oh, that's so <laughs> creepy.
1: Yeah, that really nasty visual images there. I'm sorry about that. (laughs)
0: Traumatizing (laughs) myself. But it does really work, doesn't it, in this instance, because they do look well, they look like phantoms. Dior and Dali, of course, two other extremely Mm. aesthetic, refined, very clear creative visions themselves, interestingly, Choosing to be dressed by somebody else, yeah, but that worked, didn't it? And in fact, the details of those costumes, which we'll show you, are yeah. brilliant. Some of the detail, I think, is lost in the pictures. <laughs> yes, so it tell really us, is. Yeah. Well, I mean,
1: Dalí had these glasses that were so we've got to uh, pictures sort of conventional spectacles, but sandwiched between the two planes of glass were live ants. So you've got I mean, that's really bizarre, really bizarre, even for Dalí, I think.
0: So he's looking all night.
1: Yeah. So not only is there the sort of bewildering stilt situation, you've got the (laughs) ants and things going on as well, which again probably comes back to your point about why you need a dress rehearsal. Yeah. But at the same time though, I think with Christian Dure, we've got someone who likes the play of fancy dress. I mean, as you said, they're established Athletes in their own right, but also, of course, longtime attendees at these sorts of gatherings. So in 1947, for example, Dior attends a fancy dress ball which is themed kings and queens. He dresses as a lion, as the king of beasts. So Brilliant. that sort of slight, you know, humour, playing with the theme, but also being able to kind of take the piss out of himself in a way. Which
0: is nice because actually when you think about Dior as a brand, yeah. you think of it as a quite serious, exactly. highly refined mm. Concept and actually, yeah. it's lovely to think of him mm. being able to send. But I'm I mean, possibly up.
1: also says with you saying that I'm thinking that how these events are distanced that he's not worried if he dresses as a lion or you know in in these kind of really incongruous costumes here that that is going to affect his
0: brand. But I think that's something that's really sad about today is that mm. there is a requirement for everyone to be so on brand at things yeah. that creatively there is less freedom to ask about. Not least because you're photographed in, yeah. a, around the world in the 13 seconds after that picture yeah. was taken. So you see a lot less of that desire think, yeah, to play with true. elements or send yourself up. It doesn't happen as much. I mm. think not just in this world with celebrities, but I think in real life it doesn't happen so much because people are so frightened of uh, yeah, no, portraying think, themselves yeah. in a way and then having it there forever on the internet.
1: Yeah, that, that moment then becomes something that is immortalised through yeah. its its capture on Instagram. Yeah, suddenly made that mistake. Yes. <laughs>
0: Oh, don't be stupid, Ben. You're always on brand. (laughs) Oh, bless you.
1: (laughs) But actually, I suppose that that idea of kind of on brand, I mean, one of the perpetual issues that you have in costume balls past and present is who do you dress as? And I think it's interesting here that there is a tussle as to who is going to be Cleopatra. And we've mentioned that when, you know, people being the sort of shitty Marilyn Monroe, there are even, you know, whether you're high or low in society, you know, whether it's in the distant past or more recent, there are some characters that just keep coming up and Cleopatra one of them. And apparently, Bestecki himself has to intervene and declares that Lady Diana Cooper, this is to be his, I suppose, stand-in at the pier, should have that honour. So interesting that I suppose some things do remain the same. And this is a costume that's designed by Cecil Beaton and Oliver Messel.
0: And that reminds me of when we've talked about other big contemporary Mm. costume parties like Heidi Klum's Halloween. How would you respond to that invitation as a guest? Because there is a hierarchy of who should look at Heidi Klum's Halloween party. Heidi Klum is the queen in the room. Yeah. She needs to absolutely shine. Mm. And you would want to very carefully tread the line in your own outfit of being having enough effort that you look like you've understood mm. the brief and that you respect the yeah. requirements of the occasion, but not too good that you might in any way compete with the attention of mm. the host. Yeah, I think that's a kind of timeless concern. I don't think I that's I sort of true. Love.
1: And I think it's in some ways that is punctuated because of course all the guests have seen what they're wearing the night before. At the dress rehearsal, because what no one has seen is what Bastigi is wearing, because when the dress rehearsal happens, he's wearing this sort of ill-fitting shirt. shirt. And what he dresses as, which is also odd, you might think uh, a king or some emperor, you know, based on what we've said about him. But no, he dresses as the procurator of the Venetian Empire. So the kind of leading figure of Venice, but... Maybe not the most dramatic of roles. I don't know. I read it as he's so sort of powerful and influential that he doesn't need to be a king. He doesn't, you know. And obviously, the leader of Venice, you've come to Venice at his party. And so, as he is the leader of this party, there's a sense that he is making out a subtle but no less striking point that he's the leader of this little world and that, you know, he doesn't need to be too showy, perhaps, about it, maybe.
0: That's interesting.
1: I don't know. I, I just sort of see him as this sort of quite adept at psychological manipulation in some ways.
0: It doesn't help that the f- portraits of him mm. from the evening, he looks pretty sinister. Yeah,
1: no, I think you're right. Yeah.
0: And he's wearing that enormous wig.
1: Mm. Which really does extenuate his quite pronounced features and you know, his very sharp sort of nose, nose.
0: Yes, the wig is incredibly curly, isn't it? Mm. So it's sort of a very bouncy affair. Yeah. And it's kind of almost weirdly disapproving quality yeah. to his facial expression, mm. which is, again, not what you expect in a host. No. It should be about encouragement. Exactly. And, and exactly you know, that, yeah. oh, we're all here, what larks. Yeah. That's what I say every time. Because <laughs> yes, so I remember. It, yeah, ben. I have.
1: Asked, <laughs> remember those words distinctly in your Halloween ball. you know, hall.
0: glower at everybody. No. I mean, I have. I was going to say you moments, might do it subtly, but yeah, moments,
1: it's... Yeah. it's yeah,
0: Only close friends and family. Um, it also makes me think what he wears and that idea that is he not needing to try or overdo it, or put yeah. too much effort in. Of course, the winner for me of Best in Show, I guess, <laughs> is in fact someone who takes a very different mm. creative and very different stylistic approach to the evening, dressed unlike any other guest. Yeah. Because you'll see in the pictures that we show you, obviously the benefit of the theme is that you all look like one group. And they do. They're all of an era. Yeah, it it's It's all a, a very elaborate, yeah. lots of gowns, lots of jewellery, of mm-hmm. course. The masks are very yeah. prominent. And then Jean Tierney <laughs> is wearing a $14 dress mm. in a candy stripe with a little mop cap and a basket. Yep. And of course... Therefore stands out. Mm. I mean, she looks like a dream.
1: Mm. I'm wondering, what is her motivation there, do you think? Is it that she knows she can't compete and so thinks, let's not even bother? Or do you think there is something that's a bit more barbed, that she is playing a bit more mischievous?
0: I think it's impossible to look at the picture of her in comparison to the pictures of everyone else and not think that it's a statement about youth and purity and simplicity. Mm. There is something so decadent about what everyone else is wearing. It is overdone. They're uncomfortable. All of them look mm. uncomfortable. And she is tripping about in this beautiful, mm. simple, country dress. I think it's genius. Yeah. I think I bought a 1980s Laura Ashley Ooh. bridesmaid's dress, which oh. it wasn't until it arrived that I thought, oh gosh, that was what was in my head. It was the Janey the the picture. Yeah.
1: Have you worn it in a Similar context?
0: Um, or? I've worn it.
1: I'm sensing a story, listeners. No, it just didn't. Oh. I don't
0: think it had the, well, I don't think it was as magical as that. Oh, okay. I don't think I pulled it off quite as much. It was a little bit tight. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep you posted on that. I only had a very quick outing in Venice. Okay, or well, maybe
1: something to, to dust off. Yeah,
0: it yeah, had okay. some sort of big, you know, puffy 80s sleeves. It's very similar. It's very similar. Oh, that, I, I'm quite liking
1: that. <laughs> oh, okay.
0: I think it has another chance that is fine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think you're right. I mean, and it's interesting, Jean Tierney's response then, because also another younger attendee, Jacqueline DeReeb, said as follows, it was a ball not for fun. It was a ball to be thrilled. That's quite another word. It was a ball to be delighted, but not for fun. And I think that's interesting that you don't enjoy yourself. You go to all this effort, you go to all this trouble, but actually you're just there to be delighted but,
0: yeah. Do you think she means to be impressed with the grandeur, mm. but not to actually? I think so. Enjoy and I, I think
1: she—the sense that she knows she needs to be part of this ball, to be part of that world—in much the same way that Pierre Cardin, as a young designer making the garments for Dali and Dior, feels that. But again, I'm thinking back to the episode we did with Levi, where at the Rothschild balls, Beaton is saying that he doesn't kind of want to go. This is the spat he has with the Burtons. He doesn't want to miss out.
0: That's really difficult, isn't it? Because I think we all do know that feeling. Yeah,
1: But it is, I think what's so difficult about this, again, the kind of clique of people, is it a personal gathering or is it a professional gathering? Mm. And the honest answer is that it's kind of both. Ostensibly it's personal. Really by that we mean it's professional. And if you're not there you're kind of not part of this set,
0: mm. I think. So you need to go and see and be seen, but you're yeah. not expecting to have the time of your life, which actually is tragic because it costs exactly the same amount mm. of money and time to put on an affair that feels like that as it does to put exactly. on a one where yeah. everyone has a riot and mm. needs to sleep for four days. <laughs>
1: exactly so. Yeah, but I think it is. And I think, as you said, you know, we both would be cognizant of those experiences where as opposed with everybody, but, you know, you are sort of torn between what you might personally want to do, i.e. maybe not go, have your fish and chip supper or whatever it might yeah. be. But actually, I the- always
0: choose <laughs> the fish and chip supper.
1: But, you know, you feel that, you know, damn it, I've got to bring out the suit, you know, put the face on and perform for this, I think. And the fact that it's someone who is much younger than the other guests that is kind of questioning this, I think, mm. makes it more poignant and sad, really.
0: It is a bit sad, but equally... Guests are recognizing that for what it is, it was a success, yes, aren't they? Yeah. Because the Arca Khan Yeah. His sort of take on it, I think, is hilarious, really. <laughs> he said, I saw King Edward's coronation in London in nineteen oh two and King George's in nineteen eleven, and the parties that went with them. I've never seen anything like them since until last night. Mm. That from everything that we've said, it sounds like that would be well tick, job done. Yeah, yeah I in think. In terms you're right, of the yeah. aspiration for the evening. Mm. It wasn't about delighting Mm. and bringing a crowd together to have this wondrous, rapturous occasion.
1: And I suppose you've also got with this world, people who are used to these events, people who have been to so many that you're almost comparing the different shindigs that you've been to. So it is the case of the architectural sophistry of the place settings or you know how it's it's decorated, how it's lit, how the flower arrangements are done. That's probably actually what they're doing. You could almost yes. imagine them smuggling, you know, out from under their robes, a little clipboard. Well, how do they compete?
0: <laughs> and that's I often think, you know, when someone is described as a socialite, that means that that's, know, yeah. that's their profession. Yeah. You are going to feel a certain ennui when it's another party yeah. and another, as you say, get dressed again, turn out again. Mm. It's not like for most people, those are Once a year or once in a lifetime moments where actually you throw everything at it. And the other thing that I think people don't talk about often, and it definitely is a case for most people when a big event is on the horizon, Mm. is however much you want to be there, however excited you are when you receive that invitation, however long you've planned your outfit for that party or that wedding. Mm. There is a moment about two days before where you cannot be bothered to go. And I think that's a universal, it's probably got a name. Some cultures will have a great name for that. Where you just think, actually, oh, there's been a lot of build up, and now I'm not even sure that I could be
1: asked. Exactly. Yeah, I think you're right. But And I think what's interesting, I mean, talking about this, I mean, we've kind of flirted with the idea maybe with the Devonshire Ball and the Romanov Ball, but this demonstrates for me that these fancy dress balls can be like a currency. Mm. It, you know, there is that sort of expectation, and I'm conscious we've changed our tones from where we, we started. Have. And, I, and we? I was
0: just thinking about that, because I think probably what we need to do in response to this is to do an episode on an event that was so completely enjoyable, Mm. so outrageously debauched.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Up for that. (laughs) Where we know
0: that people had the time of their lives.
1: But I actually think that you're more likely to get that if you are thinking of something that is not of the social elite, that you're Mm. actually, where you don't have those sorts of pressures, where it is more of a sort of private... Genuinely more communal. I mean,
0: it's nice of you to mention my various parties there, Ben. <laughs> which you were clearly doing in a <laughs> in a slightly, just, you new. Know, I know you want to spare my embarrassment, but it's...
1: <laughs> obviously, Lucy, obviously, always. It's going to be so awkward off air.
0: <laughs> I am toying currently with the idea of, should I have another big Halloween party this year?
1: Ooh, it is
0: the subject of much, much debate. debate. Yeah.
1: Clearly I'm not going to be invited. Well,
0: yes, I'm just saying, (laughs) play your cards right. (laughs) Otherwise I'll Truman Capote to you and be like, off the list.
1: Oh, oh. (laughs)
0: What does this event remind us of today? We've said sort of as close as we can get as probably the Met Gala, but it also reminds me a bit. The arrivals, watching the arrivals mm. reminds me of George, Clooney, and oh, Amal's yes, wedding, yes, yes. where they had the curtain up mm. and you could just see people in and out, and all the paparazzi yeah. were trying to glimpse the guests for the wedding. There's something, of course, so outrageous about arriving by boat in <laughs> full dress, even if it's a full ball gown as opposed it to a does costume.
1: If we're thinking of that royal connection, when you've got the royal wedding and members of the royal family are arriving in the Windsor. Zorian coaches. Yeah. It's a little bit different.
0: It's That's so easy. Piece of <laughs> piss. But <laughs> well, what's interesting is George and Amal can do nothing wrong. They are, yeah. of course, saintly and, mm. and perfect in every way. But it's interesting to see, you know, when we discuss the criticism, I think that a lot of the fascination and revulsion that we see around these events, where we want the glorious, gory details, mm. but we also want to judge it as vulgar and ostentatious yeah. and distasteful, genuinely, and I'm not saying this to go you around my Halloween event, but <laughs> <laughs> I think it is a response to that kind of NFI. I'm not yeah. invited. I'm not part of this. And yeah. therefore I'm able to glory in looking at the details, but also say, well, of course it's absolutely disgusting and it's kind mm. of beneath me. Mm. I think it's as much about missing out.
1: I think it is. I mean, I think, you know, going back to our you know previous episode, when we're thinking about the Met Gala and camp, I mean, clearly you and I, and hopefully many of our listeners will be responding to the images with glee. Mm. But I think there'll be others who are dismissive and they will dress that up in all sorts of philosophical sort of ways. But I think, yeah, it'll be because they aren't there. It's not their world. They want that insight, that fun, but they don't have it.
0: I also, I know someone who on paper you would assume would be politically opposed to Trump and everything he stands Mm -hmm. for. But interestingly, last summer when the invitations to the state banquet at Windsor Mm. were sent out who did you see in the lineup happy as Larry to accept that invitation I'm obviously not going to name this person but I was horrified Mm. so I think there's a thing where it's like you can object to a thing in principle and when
1: the moment the gilded invitation
0: drops through your door suddenly oh maybe it's not that bad I mean I really Mm. judged that decision quite harshly but I think that's again quite a common response it's like well actually the rules change when you're invited in
1: yes and I think that's true And I'd imagine that individual probably did the whole oh well I have to that's probably the kind of conventional oh of course because you can yeah. always find a reason to oh work. exactly of course you can yeah
0: I mean you could go and spill your soup on him yes that would, be, that would have been the heroic response <laughs> yes it would <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this retrospective eavesdrop on the greatest ball of the 20th century which by the way is one of my main ambitions to host something that would then be in me- memory referred to as the greatest ball
1: of the twenty-first century. Of the twenty-first century. That's going to happen. It's going to happen in Halloween 2019. <laughs> Lucy, great recovery.
0: I want that, and I want a Christmas number one, and then I can die happy. That's less likely to happen. Don't say it, Ben. I'm. I'm, I'm
1: just recovered. I've gained ground. I'm not going to say anything. I'm no, silent I've, for the rest of the episode. I saw that.
0: Sharp and take a breath. <laughs> We would love to know from our description of it today, do you think it deserves that title? The Greatest Ball of the 20th Century, or perhaps not? Tell us what you think in the comments on Apple Podcasts, where we love to read your reviews of this project, or the comments on our Instagram feed. We'll be showing you some of the outstanding imagery we've discussed in this episode there. So head to Dress Fancy Podcast to join in the conversation. As always... Thanks to Mark, our editor, to Miranda Pountney for being the voice of Daisy Fellows, and to you all for listening. Join us next time for more costume drama.